looking back to the start of your career, what would you do differently knowing what you know now? Just because you are lifting more load does not necessarily equate to more muscle. Do your loads reflect your musculature? If your loads do not reflect your musculature, something needs addressing. Because just lifting weight will not actually build a tissue. In my opinion, the six to eight rep range, I don't think is optimal for hypertrophy person. I think like... So today we've got an absolute blast of a guest, someone uh, I've been working on trying to get to come on for a while, someone who I've been following for a long time since I think you first got involved with uh, Jordan Peters and today that's Cuba. Cuba is one of the best coaches in the UK and probably I would say internationally on the ranks now. Uh, I've been a pro. You did powerlifting before as well, I believe, and we're retardedly strong from that from what I've seen before. And your own physique progresses a lot alongside like your extreme dedication and discipline to what you do, which I have a huge amount of respect for. So um, really look forward to the conversation today, trying to dig out some gold from your brain of experience you have. And uh, thank you for your time. Mate, that is a, a tremendous introduction. So thank you so much for that. Now, I haven't actually powerlifted competitively, but my gym is very much powerlifting based. Yeah. And we had some of the best powerlifters in the country trained there. So as you can imagine, I was forced into doing some decent lifts. So yeah, it's uh, it's been a ride for sure, man. So I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation, man. Um, question for you based on that, actually. How important do you think creating that base and foundation from that type of training is from anyone listening to this who's looking to maybe get into bodybuilding or just generally get bigger? Do you think that's necessarily somewhere where people should start or they should maybe look to the more specialized, advanced training out the gate? It's a great question, actually, because I do think absolutely everyone would benefit from some sort of some sort of structure where they learn the basic movements with the bench squat and deadlift and how to actually brace because 100%. these movements have such a massive carryover into all your other lifts i think this is what i believe most people can actually get it wrong and they don't learn the basics they try to learn the overcomplicated movements which this shouldn't be overcomplicated, but there's levels to it, right? So I think the stepping stones that you have to take within your journey across your training, your nutrition, your supplementation, right? And I think at the moment, we've got a little bit of a divide where people are not doing the basics. They're jumping straight from, you know, 10% stuff up to like 100% stuff when they haven't really earned the right to really take it there yet. So I do think building a foundation with... Firstly, being able to train with good execution, full range of motion, and most importantly, great intensity. I think th this has to be the, the, the foundation of it all. And I think right now we've got a lot of a backward system where people almost want to learn the intricate, advanced stuff before learning the basics, which I think at times can be probably the most advanced things you can ever do because you can never, ever get to a place where you're so, so good at doing the basics, you can always improve. So I think th th there's there's a lot of avenues that can actually go in, go in with this. But personally, if I had someone that had never stepped foot in the gym, I would definitely be a fan of them actually learning the basic movement patterns and starting from scratch with that and then building up on from that rather than trying to do almost a bodybuilding style split. I would also start with someone maybe doing a, a full body or even upper lower and then build from there but base that around the basic compound movements as well. I agree 100%. I think um, although it's not sexy, it's more productive. And I actually almost even regress my training back to only training four days a week. And I get way better results now training slightly less than training more, which is like counterintuitive to what most people think. And the interesting thing I see as well is that too many people fuck around with like using fancy handles when training, yet they're not actually using any load or fucking doing anything. And like, it, and this is actually what I miss about the UK now living in Dubai is I miss the atmosphere of gyms like Ultraflex, King's Gym in London, Physique Warehouse, like all these places because like music super loud, people fucking gunning it. Like I, actually, I really enjoyed it. I went to Destination Dallas in Texas uh, in the summer. I was like, fuck me. It reminds me of like the UK. So it's awesome. Like loud music, people going nuts. I'm like, this is sick. Whereas in like Dubai, everyone's a bit of a pussy and they just like to play it. Like people like to like do high volume with lots of machine and pump work, but they don't really yeah. want to do the hard stuff, which actually I think is the way society really is now that we know what we should probably do, but that's the hard things. We'll try and find a, a bit of a cop out. Yeah, I, I totally agree. But 
listen, I know what it feels like doing a hard set and I know what it feels like in terms of reward system doing the hard stuff and you just cannot beat it in my opinion. Uh, I mean, there's never going to come a point in my life where I don't do something challenging on a daily basis because the rewards you get from that are, are unbelievable. So I think the more people realize that Unfortunately, if you want to get anywhere in life doing anything, any sport, any any endeavour, you need to get uncomfortable. And the more uncomfortable you get, the bigger the return, in my opinion. 100%. I think the higher ability to touch, like tolerate that stress becomes, right? And I'll give you a story. So, like, you know James Hollingshead really well. I, I remember maybe five years ago, I trained with him for, like, a couple of weeks, a couple of times. And I remember distinctly, it's funny we're talking about free movements, I train legs with him and he likes to barbell squat, right? There was me, James, and this other dude called Paul Hubbard. Paul was throwing up in the car park being sick. Like, yes. I was like fucking dead. James did like, I don't know, was like 300 kilos for about a million reps. And for me, like that was just like an eye-opening experience. It's like, holy fucking shit. Like this is another level. And this stuff's really basic, but that extra 10, 20% intensity is like a whole nother stratosphere in terms of like where it takes you physically which I think most people don't ever experience. I completely agree. Now, I was exposed to this from a very, very, very early age. I was 15 years old and I actually trained with a guy called Tony Megson. And any of any of guys that are listening that, that are into bodybuilding and know the archives and, you know, some of the older, older gentlemen that competed back in the day, he was a, a training partner of Ian Harrison. And he is one of the legends back in the day. He actually did WWE after his bodybuilding career. Uh, he was huge. Team. Yeah, he was huge and incredible legs as well. And fun fact, he actually snapped both his kneecaps and then he managed to come back and build his legs. Anyway, long story short, um, I was training with his training partner for two years straight. And the anxiety I would get before the leg days would train legs Sunday morning, every single Sunday at 8am. And from the time when he would pick me up in the car, uh, because I knew what was happening and it was, it was more so anxiety and the pressure to perform and not let them down as well. Because I had people that gave me the time of the day, right? So if someone's investing time into you, when you have a level of respect for them, it's almost going to make you work a lot harder. And this is, I think where having a good coach plays a huge role as well, or having someone there that will push you on. Uh, but honestly, the, the sessions were, were mad. It was high intensity, moderate volume. Volume wasn't really that high, but every single set, pardon me, every single set was taken to the death with the drop sets, forced reps. So it was it was definitely brutal. And I kid you not, every single week would train Sunday, and on Friday. That would be the first day where I would be able to semi-sit down on the toilet without pain, without holding on to stuff. Saturday would be the only day where I would not be in excruciating pain with my legs. And then Sunday would train again, and then it starts over and over again. What type of training were you doing back then? So back then, it was the, the knowledge was very, very, very basic, right? So it was basically going to the gym, and train as hard as possible. Now, back then when I trained with Tony, it was more of a, a Dorian-style split. We'd do chest and tricep, back and bicep. Uh, we'd do shoulders and arms again, and then we'd do legs. Now, when I stopped training with Tony, I actually shifted onto push-pull legs variations, but back then, it was more so doing push-pull legs six times a week with one day of rest. So I've pretty much explored every single training style high volume, low volume, and over the years, it's kind of, the, the more you know, I think the more you know, the more cursed you are with it as well. But I think the more you know, the more you realize sometimes it's not just the amount of time you spend in the gym. And back in those days, for me, it was literally just all about going to the gym and killing myself. So there was no regard for fatigue management. There was no regard for anything apart from going to the gym and doing what you need to do and crawling up, crawling back out the other side. Um, so that was my first exposure to, to bodybuilding training, as, as you would like to call it. Uh, but luckily enough, with those guys, the execution was always pretty good. Like, it was about training hard, but still with good, good execution and full range of motion. So when I was first taught to squat, it was always, always literally ass to grass, your hamstrings 
are literally touching your ankles. Otherwise, you're not going deep enough. So I was very fortunate to actually be exposed to that from an early age, to be honest. Do you think, from one of the things I see a lot, is people don't have that um, knowledge or maybe initial introduction. They don't they don't understand that they need to do full range of motion and things like that from the beginning. And you get a lot of people doing like quarter squats and all that type of crap. Just repeat that again, please, Charlie, because you was breaking up. Sorry. Sorry. Um, from what I can see, you get a lot of people now who don't have that introduction. You don't understand that you should necessarily be doing full range of motion or, or almost like what good looks like um, in terms of perspective, which is why I think you see a lot of shitty stuff done in the gym. And sometimes people teaching shitty form, um, and then it's almost like bad beads breeds bad in that respect because they don't know what good looks like. Is your internet playing? Is that up, Charlie? Up a bit? I'm, I'm, I actually caught uh, off. Let of me that. just try and, and shut now everything your down. video is actually off. Uh, let me. I'm going to disconnect my VPN in one second. Yeah. Let's see if that fucking lets it off. One second. Uh, let's edit that out. All good? That should be better. That's a little bit better. Yeah, cool. It's still a um, bit distorted, so but that's, that's a bit better. In terms of like... Properly, so is that right now? Better. Yeah, okay. It sh should be better now. I'll just connect my VPN sometimes blocks it. So in terms of like a lot of people you see do a lot of like partial reps and a lot of shitty form... I think one of the problems is that a lot of people don't know what good looks like. Where would you suggest people listening to this should look for maybe information or like who to watch for what good looks like? Because there's a lot of people teaching, not going to say the wrong thing, but not necessarily the right thing. It's a little bit of minefield at the moment because you do have a lot of educators that often preach just something that they are trying to sell which I don't necessarily agree with. I think what people need to do now is, is have a little bit of an open mind. And the principles are very, very simple. If you see an educator just pushing one idea, I don't think they're the person that you should necessarily listen to. If you see an educator or someone or an athlete posting the clips and you can see good, full range of motion with great control, and they are not just swaying towards one idea. They have an open mind and they almost talk about the thought process behind what they do and how they do it. I think these are the people that you need to learn from and these are the people that you also need to follow. I think John Jewett is an amazing example of that. Obviously, Jordan Peters, like he will always, always give you a rationale behind what he does. And these are generally people that, yeah, yeah they do have certain products, but they're not pushing a certain bias it's not just one dimensional. Like they will always give different options as to what you may need to do because that's, what's bodybuilding, that's what bodybuilding is all about, right? There's no set rules. And one thing I need people to understand is this as well. Your favorite athlete or your best athlete in the world are not always going to be the people that you should probably mimic and copy at the same time as well. Because... With no disrespect, a lot of these guys would look the way they do no matter what they did in the gym, right? To a degree. So I think there's a lot of guys out there that people can watch. I think one great example, another one, which is Nick Gloff as well. His execution is, is absolutely tremendous. Um, there's AJ Morris, the natural crowd as well. So there's a lot of people that you can obviously 100%. get access to on internet, but... I think people definitely need to make sure that they keep a very much open mind and try not to just fall under one bracket or one idea. Try all different methods out for yourself, but understand one thing. If someone tells you to do something that doesn't actually include training hard with good execution and full range of motion, and then having an open mind towards exercise selection and other training methods that may include that as well, then you know they're probably not the right person to talk to. Um, so always, always try and keep an open mind with that. 100%. I think that's one of the big things that people don't understand is also, I think, even I remember that with Jordan Peters, he, he coached me for a while. It's like he would admit a year or two later when his perspective had changed on something, um, he would be like open to like learning new things and continuing that development and understanding that 
not everything is necessarily right, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And I think as years go by, things improve, right? Your knowledge improves, you've got more experience. So I do believe that you often see things a lot clearly when it comes to training, when it comes to nutrition, and when it comes to even the supplements, right? So I think over time, you almost come to better conclusions because you see better results and you see you see what different things can actually do to different people. So you see patterns as well. So I think it forever evolves. Like we all have certain biases, we all have certain ideas um, and we all have certain methodologies, but they're all quite similar in a fashion. When you look at the guys that are getting the most results, it's not really all that different. I agree. Who would who would you say? Here's a good question for you. So, looking back to the start of your career, what would you do differently, knowing what you know now? Ooh, that's always a great question. Like, first things first. I, I probably, if I had a time machine, I don't think I'd change anything because I wouldn't be the person I am today. Because it's been a fun ride being able good to answer. get that's here. Political but answer. Is that politician? If honestly, if 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 I had to pick one thing, is I would definitely not chase load for sake of chasing load because I have spent years and years, I wouldn't say wasting time in the gym, but simply training too heavy and trying to really do the lifts that wasn't really complementing my bodybuilding. Ultimately, my goal is building muscle tissue. And some of the lifts I were putting in, they might have looked impressive, but even if I was to break them down now, there's so many things I'd be able to pick out that I could have done better. So I think the main most important thing would be definitely training execution and being more mindful of earning the right to put certain load on the bar. And what I mean by that is if I'm not able to move a certain load under complete control with full range of motion and still have great intensity and high proximity to failure safely, without having to wear knee sleeves and, you know, tons of elbow sleeves and elbow wraps, whatever else people wear these days. Like, you haven't earned the right to move that load. So if there was one thing that I would change would be absolutely taking my time with load progressions and not trying to chase certain loads just because I was training with Jordan, for example, or just because I was training with people that are stronger than me or even looking up to certain people that are extremely strong in the game and wanting to be like them. Uh, there's a time and a place for that. And I think, like, like always, it takes time and you've got to be patient. And ultimately, you've got to focus on your own journey because ability to lift load will vary person to person tremendously. But one thing people have to understand, and that's something I overlooked massively, is that just because you are lifting more load does not necessarily equate to more muscle. The amount of guys that I see at the moment deadlifting seven, seven and a half plates, squatting six, seven plates. And one question I always ask is like, do your loads reflect your musculature? If your loads do not reflect your musculature, something needs addressing. And it was actually a conversation I had with one of my clients because he sent me over um, a clip of this guy from Instagram. Uh, and I'm not going to out anyone, anybody, but my, my literal reply to that was, this is a perfect example of what weightlifting is versus bodybuilding because just lifting weight will not actually build a tissue because the guy, no disrespect, but the guy's like, it's built like a stick. Like he doesn't really have much muscle whatsoever, but the lifts that he's putting in are extremely impressive, right? But fact of the matter is the range of motion is, is poor. So he's basically doing everything that he can and putting himself in the easiest position to just move that load from A to B. He's not actually doing himself any favours when it comes to actually getting any quality stimulus for anything that he does, right? So, if you ask one thing, that's the one thing that I would probably do. If I had a time machine, I could I could roll it back. Is there, like, specific exercises you think, like, fuck, I should have maybe not focused on training so heavy with deadlifts or hack squats and just... Would you also, with that, maybe take the rep ranges up a notch for maybe, like, my opinion, the six to eight rep range I don't think is optimal for hypertrophy person. I think, like, 10 to 15 is probably better, 10 to 12, um, obviously to, like, failure. What, what's your perspective on that? 
it depends. It, it it would be more so across the board. And and one thing to understand as well is this, right? If I if I took you for a set of RDLs, for example, and you control the RDL and it's an eight rep set, and I'll give you an example from my leg day yesterday, right? Um, eight rep RDL, the whole set took pretty much forty seconds. Now. Any more reps than that, my form would break down because I don't have the gas tank to do that. And I very much doubt most people have the gas tank to be able to actually brace properly and be able to stay in the set for longer. So one thing that I think is massively misunderstood, and even rep ranges aside, is I would literally aim to stay in the set as long as possible rather than trying to get the set over with and just move the load for sake of moving load. So every lift that I did, I wouldn't be just attacking it with all I have just to move it. I would take the approach of, right, I am going to actually go into this set and try and aim to stay in the set for as long as possible. And obviously, personally for me, I think 7 to 15 reps across the board is, is excellent, right? But if you are doing a set of 7 reps, this is where I tend to be a lot more controlled in the eccentrics. So my set of seven may actually take like 40 seconds all in all because the heavier I go, I tend to control the load even more. The lighter I go, I still control the load, but the risk is not quite as great. So I don't need to be as, as intentional with making sure that the eccentric doesn't speed up. Like, don't get me wrong, the, the control is always there in end ranges, but it's a different ball game between, you know, pressing 70s versus 50s, right? You can always afford to move it slightly, slightly speedy on the 50s, right? So for me, it would be a case of aiming to stay in the set for as long as possible to get the best stimulus that I can um, and working across those rate ranges and not really doing the triples or doubles or even singles at times that I used to do back in the day. I think that's literally just a waste of time for anyone trying to bodybuild. And the stimulus to fatigue ratio in that is absolutely trash as well. Uh, I mean, I remember back in the day when I used to do the big squats as well, yeah. uh, when I used to do like triples on, on squats, right? It, it would completely wreck me. And I mean, I'd, I'd do like a, I think I did, there was a powerlifting comp going on and I did... 260 no 270 for like four reps or five reps something like that and i remember coming away from that set i was like this was an amazing set but i kid you not i was wrecked for like 10 days after that because i did that set and then i still continued with my entire leg session so as you can imagine the stimulus to fatigue ratio with that is terrible now would i be able to get away with that if i was just doing that set and maybe one to exercise after sure but I still had five exercises to do after that set. So I, I think there's a lot of things that could have been rectified. But again, it's been a the learning curve, doing it and making the mistakes has allowed me to be the person I am today and see things clearly the way I do now. Makes a lot of sense. And when you've gone through, obviously you've dramatically added quite a lot of muscle tissue over the years. And obviously you're very meticulous with what you do. A lot of the things guys want to do is they want to add the muscle tissue, but not necessarily body fat, which is obviously like a bit contradictory because you need to a calorie surplus to gain uh, muscle mass, right? It's a bit like literally having your cake and eating it. But um, what strategies have you used to go not go too far in terms of gaining excess body fat? And for, I presume obviously just starting from a leaner position and just being not overloading in terms of calories too quick out of the gate, which is I think what a lot of people do. So this is like a, you've opened up a bit of a Pandora box at the moment because it's actually something I had to go okay. over a lot of clients at the moment. So absolutely nobody gets fat from just diet adherence and an off-season push-up. Like, it's just impossible. I mean, I'll give you an example, Charlie, right? I added 52 pounds of body weight after my show and I still was in decent shape. But I added 52 pounds of body weight over... 32 weeks. Now, at the end of that push-up, I was still pretty hungry before every single meal. And I mean, I would eat, I'd be satisfied for like 30 minutes and I would be like, actually, I, I could eat again, right? So, absolutely basic thing that will allow you to gain most muscle tissue is controlling your eating. And what I mean by that is, 
people are extremely patient. Absolutely nobody wants to see a progressive run over 20, 24 weeks. One, it's extremely hard. Two, you have to remain extremely patient and disciplined and you have to control your eating habits because let me tell you one thing, people don't realize that actually if you gain four pounds of back of a sushi cheat meal and then you have that sushi cheat meal again in five, six days time and you gain another four pounds, it's all body fat. Now you keep repeating that for one month, you could literally gain 24 pounds and out of that 24 pounds in that month, you've probably gained a pound of muscle. So when you look at the bigger picture, the biggest error people make, firstly, is getting greedy with food progressions. Just because you are hungry does not mean you need more food. Where your progression needs to be gauged is on the gym floor. The way you need to understand and break down measuring your progress is, firstly, gym performance, secondly, your body weight, thirdly, your visuals, and they all actually work hand in hand. Not one variable is more important than the other. Just driving up your body weight without seeing your performance actually go up is just body weight for sake of body weight. It all needs to go up in a fashion where it's step by step. Now, in an ideal world, starting at a very lean position and then taking your time and taking your body weight up over 15 to 20 week period. And in that 15 to 20 week period, you want to go up 20, 25 maximum 30 pounds if you are loading yourself with high amounts of BEDs. But if you're not, 15 to 20 weeks as an assisted athlete, you probably want to go 25 pounds max if you started lean. Now, if it's post-comp and you're completely peeled out of your mind, you probably have a runway for progression of 40 pounds over a course of around 30 weeks. And that would be a health phase and then a push-up phase, right? So the biggest thing is controlling eating, staying relatively hungry and being patient with taking your body weight up. And in off season, you prioritize training performance, but you still pay attention to the visuals because one thing you have to understand is this, it's actually quite hard to get fat. I'll be honest, like even for guys that are not that heavily muscled, like you will gain some body fat for sure. It's inevitable, but I don't agree with getting too far out of shape. It's counterproductive. And I've seen it with myself so many times where I get to a certain point in body fat and my progression in the gym stops. If you are unable to progress in the gym, if your pumps are poor, this means that your sensitivity is completely shot. You are not in a position to build any good quality muscle mass. This is a position where you are now oversaturated. And if anything, you just gain more body fat. So I absolutely agree. You cannot stay peeled year round. You have to get slightly softer and you will get softer, but it's a process that takes time. And realistically, getting fat to the point where, you know, you've got lard hang hanging over your pants, where you put your posing trunks on. And if something's hanging over the lower back and the lower back fat is there to the point where it's hanging over your trunks, you've probably pushed it way too far. I can, I can rewind on some of these bits. I know I've gone quite fast, but it wasn't just a, a black and white answer on this one. hundred percent. I think, um, would you say that people just don't understand the, the ramifications if they start having a couple of meals where they go mental, that the, the accumulation of that's wild? Because I think people don't understand that they can really gain huge amounts of body fat very quickly, in particular like after being very lean. Your body's so sensitive to pull body fat back on. Do you have anything you do with people to try and keep them like mentally on track other than like fucking wanting to beat them with a stick um, to keep them like on the straight and narrow in that approach? I think this comes with a lot of experience, but you have to really, really explain to the client is this because at the moment, I don't think many people are actually talking about this. And I think a lot of coaches, because there's a lot of yes men at the moment in the industry, right? People are, are not actually willing to tell the clients what they need to tell them. And the, it's almost like it's okay to accept mediocrity when it's not, it really isn't right. So the conversation needs to be around. I never want any of my clients to restrict themselves or restrict the social occasions. However, you can go into any setting and eat like a, a sensible human being and not a hungry bodybuilder because there's a big difference going down and having a meal or having a Nando's 
And then there's a big difference actually eating like a bodybuilder. And just because you're a bodybuilder, you need to order all the menu. That's not the case. I mean, generally, you can go into any restaurant and pretty much have the macros that you would have on your normal plan. Now, one thing I explain to clients is this. When you have established a surplus and you are not in a state of fatigue, you're not in a state where you are depleted, overfeeding and eating above and beyond your surplus is not going to have any benefits whatsoever. Eating above and beyond your surplus is then just going to store. So once that surplus is established, you have no reason and you have no need to eat and above and beyond that surplus. When you do that, that is just simply when your body starts to store, you drive inflammation, again, insulin sensitivity gets shot, and this is actually where I've seen make less progress uh, myself. Like, I'll give you examples, right? Before, back in the days when I was younger, um, if, if I went in hard on the food, right, my performance would actually dip for the next two to three days. And that's because I was inflamed. Like, your sensitivity is just not the same. And when you're not as insulin sensitive, your performance won't be the same, and you're gonna feel sluggish in the gym as well. So it's, it's always having a conversation around them is like, eat like a sensible human being, but don't eat like a hungry bodybuilder. With that um, being said, I actually think one of the things I noticed a lot is when you eat shit food is like, you can feel it in your brain, like you get brain fog and like, obviously that's gonna lead into everything else. That's also obviously inflammation. Is there any foods you try and like steer people away from specifically that you think cause more problems than other that's like a fucking red list? I think excess of anything that's overly, overly fried. I think that's, I mean, you can easily put away 3,000 calories in a meal that's probably like this big. So I think anything that's overly, overly fried, I mean, if you're going to have a five guys, sure, do it, but don't make it a weekly occurrence where you are putting a five guys in and then you're having large fries. I mean, have a five guys, have a normal double burger, but then maybe have like, small fries and share it with whoever you're eating with, right? So as far as no-go items, personally for me, and again, it's not going to be for everyone because not everyone's like me. And I think everyone needs a, a degree of a degree of freedom and a degree of, you know, leeway. I won't eat anything that's like double, triple fried. And I'll, I just won't do it. Reason why? One, I know it's going to impact my performance. Two, I know it's going to impact my blood work because I've seen it time and time again. People that often choose, part of a French, the shittier off-plan meals, these are generally the people that I see worse lipid profile with as well. So for me, no-go foods is anything that's like trash, like McDonald's. I mean, if you enjoy McDonald's, you need to reconsider your life and you actually need to go and visit a decent quality restaurant and actually eat some good quality food. So for me, it's anything that's like, filled with just complete utter trash and double fried I, I couldn't fucking agree with that anymore and that's for me it's like you know some people eating like cheap meals of fucking mcdonald's and like double burgers and all this type of shit i'm like for, for me i just like to go and have like a, like a like really nice steak somewhere or like that for me is like the thing is there anything for you that is like if you're going to go and have like a fr off plan meal or whatever what, what do you specifically go for because i imagine that's what a lot of people are thinking right now so I'm actually friends with a, a sushi restaurant owner and he actually makes my meal like, weighed out. So he, he weighs my fish out, weighs my rice out and he makes me like a, a pretty insane meal and it's all macro tracked as well. So when I eat out, I just choose that. Why? I love it. The fish quality is immense and it's a tasty meal for me as well. Now, generally, if I eat out, I can eat pretty much anywhere. It, I mean, pretty much all places have steaks, right? And who doesn't love a steak? But when I do eat out and have a steak, I specifically ask them not to put any extra oil on top. Pretty much every single restaurant you go to, if you don't tell them to put oil on top, they will fry it with more oil and they'll add stuff on top as well. So being a smarter bodybuilder, and you know that, I literally say to them, please don't add any extra oil. Use minimal oil when you, when you actually grill it, um, and I'll, I'll take it with no extras, please. So for me, it's always sushi. Um, sushi, or I actually like some of my mums, and 
my, uh, my my actual mother-in-law's cooking as well. And when they cook for me, they know the crack as well. They know I don't really like, uh, you know, too fatty stuff. So they, they actually do prepare it pretty well. But look, it's all about your choices and decisions that you make, right, around your food. Now, the devil is never in the actual food. The devil is in how you behave and the amount you eat because you could have a thousand calories of anything, right? And it's not going to create that much of a difference or that much of an impact. But a thousand calories from McDonald's, it could literally be two items of the menu. And then two items of the menu, if you're a hungry bodybuilder, it's not going to even touch the sides. So I think this is where people often need to be a lot smarter when it comes to food and social occasions and maybe make better choices if they're looking to improve the performance and they're serious about this, more importantly. And even if they're looking to improve some lipid health too, because it's no coincidence, often guys that follow a macro trap diet and it's filled with complete garbage, like their blood work is never good. And I'll be very honest with you, Charlie, right? I've done some silly stuff in past with supplementation and my blood work has never, ever been out of line, ever. And I, 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 largely, I, I largely attribute that to my nutrition as well. What, um, here's a good question. So what does your nutrition look like now? What would, how high has your calories gone? Like what's the highest you've been up to, say, in a gainy phase? So in a gaining phase, I've been up to like close 6,000 calories. The last push-up, and I can I can probably give you some accurate numbers as well. Um, my pre-prep push-up, so the pre-prep push-up before I actually started prep, on training day, the calories at, tapped out at 5,382 calories, 401 grams of protein, 823 grams of carbs, 54 grams of fats. Uh, and that's all pretty much direct fats as well. Now... As an example, let me give you an example of how much fruit I have a per day. So 100, 100, 200, 300, 450, 500 grams of fruit, 300 grams of veggies is a standard what I eat pretty much year round. Uh, that never ever changes. That's pretty much a constant variable, right? Now, the push-up before this, uh, my calories ended at, let me just give you the exact numbers because I actually do have my sheet saved here. So it's... Uh, it's always quite handy to look back on. Now, the last push-up before my uh, little mini-cut, it was around 6,500 calories, and my appetite was still relatively decent, to be honest. I wasn't, I wasn't in a place where I was like, you know, food was sitting there. Food was still pretty going down pretty well. What, um, who's, is anyone coaching you right now? Are you coaching yourself? Coaching myself at the moment. And what's been, so you've obviously got like a wealth of knowledge and experience and you've worked with uh, a wide range of different people. Who would you say has had the biggest impact in terms of, um, the knowledge you now have? Maybe if you look at like nutrition and PDs and then separately, maybe training, there's almost like three parts to that. So a massive influence has been Dr. Jackson when it comes to nutrition. Um, a lot of the content that he's put out and, uh, and his actual yeah, nutrition I've, I've, done a, well. I've done a podcast with him before. He's great. He's a great guy. Really yeah, good guy. He's incredible. He's incredible. So he actually does a nutrition course, which is, uh, which is amazing. It's, um, it does a deep dive on lots and lots of, lots of topics, but it's, it's, it's fantastic. So I think he has, he has definitely opened my eyes up to, up to a lot of things when it comes to nutrition. Uh, when it comes to training, Coach Cass in Hamsum. Uh, Coach Cass has always been in my inbox giving me some tips and often telling me off for certain things as well, uh, which is always epic. But uh, I've seen him next week. Yeah, mate, he's, uh, he's a great guy. I think, I, I'm in his bad books at the moment because somebody sent me a pull down and he don't like them. So I'm in his bad books. But either way, I'm always going to sing him praises because he's a, an extremely smart man. Um, I think Joe Bennett, tremendous influence on a lot of, that, a lot of things that he does, but I think most importantly, it's definitely been Jordan because beauty about Jordan McCorner, I, I pretty much speak to him every single day, but Jordan is still up to date with all the latest research, right? And the best thing about Jordan as well, he's always open to ideas and being able to bounce ideas back and forth with him is always great because you see a different perspective where you can share it with him we can talk about it and then we can see the pros and cons from both perspectives, my perspective and his perspective, right? So 
I think the biggest influence is definitely in him on, on a lot of things. Um, but having him in my corner and being able to have an open conversation with no bias, I think that's invaluable because a lot of guys at the moment, it's like my way or the highway, which I don't necessarily agree with, right? Why Why do you think so many people have that my way or the highway? I think in some respects, you should always be a conversation because like you as an athlete, you know how you feel and obviously you're very experienced and also a very high-level coach. So I think it's sometimes, do you think that's a point of um, not arrogance, but just a lack of being open-minded then, I guess? I think it's both. But I think the big one is uh, it's a lot of insecurity as well because it's a tough world out there at the moment, right? It's very competitive. And I feel like if people are seen or they, they feel like if they are ever seen changing their mind or almost changing the perspective of you or something, they'll see that as a weakness. But I completely disagree because I change my view on a lot of things very often. And I would never look at that as a negative because that allows me to actually become better because I'm clearly learning and I'm clearly developing my skills, right? And if you're always going to be stuck in that one, you know, single-minded approach, you're never going to develop and you're never going to grow. So I think that's the biggest issue at the moment. I think because social media is forever growing and coaching, education, world, everything else, it's so competitive. I think people almost fear, uh, fear change in a way. Yeah, I think that's where there's constantly new information and new research and even new fucking equipment that that's coming out that I think is worth exploring that a lot of people don't necessarily even look at an, an interesting question to go into is what's your um do you have like a, a recovery strategy you use i know you're like like um what's the expression dot the i's and cross the t's with everything you do what does your like recovery protocol look like nine and a half hours in bed every single night that's first and that's the most important thing between okay. nine to nine and a half hours what, what half time do you go to bed what time do you get up right so the latest i will ever go to bed is 9 p.m and then the wake time generally is 6, 6 a.m. But as I diet, my bedtime literally shifts from like 9 p.m. to like 8 and even half 7. Um, so generally, I aim for no no less than nine hours in bed. And that's non-negotiable. I think you can have any recovery modality in the world. If your sleep isn't on point, you, you, you're spinning wheels, right? Now, every single rest day, I will have some tissue work done. And every single rest day, I will have a sauna as well. I was doing the ice bath, but to be honest, from a recovery standpoint, I don't think it does anything whatsoever. From a mental standpoint, if you feel like you need it, you can go in the ice bath and you'll want to come out of it and you'll be ready to be Superman. Uh, so it does have an impact for you mentally, but I think physically, nowhere near in comparison to um, you know what sleep will do. So for me, it is super basic. Every single day, I try to have 30 minutes where I either try to nap or I will literally just lay down. I won't have my phone on me. I'll have everything switched off and I'll just close my eyes and try and relax. I think that's a huge one for people that are very, very busy. Any coaches that need to be mentally switched on, I think you need that time in the day where you have that break and a reset phase, right? And for me, generally, after I've done my first block of work, before I train, I will always, always try and have 30 minutes, either in bed or on the sofa. That's if time permits. Um, I, I'm not blessed to do that every single day, but I, I try and do my absolute best to make sure that, you know, I'm, I'm on it, I'm not procrastinating, and I'm getting in bed nice and early. Now, one huge one that I found quite interesting is spending less time on social media. I think that's a huge one. I think 100%. the longer time I spend using social media, the less energy I actually have. And that's both mental and physical. And I think that's something that's very much overlooked by many people because you see loads of people these days, all they do is this all day. Now I've got a limit on my Instagram of an hour and a half every single day. And I kid you not, Charlie, an hour and a half sounds like a long time, right? It's, Couple of posts, right? Couple of recent, couple of posts, couple of reposts, and it's done. That's it. That's your time up. 
Um, and, and that's that's been something that's been incredible. And honestly, the mental clarity that I have now, using it less is huge. Now, secondly, I don't actually go on social media until 10, 10.30 a.m. every single day. So from the time I wake, the work begins. I do my steps, get back. And when I work, it's work time. And I think having a clear divide of your work, your recovery time, your social time, and your gym time is huge when it comes to actual recovery too. Because I find most people try and do bits and bats at the same time. And I think this is where you lead to have more stressful life and less effective life and less efficient life as well which in essence is actually going to take away from your recovery because you will always feel like you're having to catch up, which is not a nice feeling. And I think it's a feeling that almost drains you as well. Um, but that's pretty much it when it comes to recovery. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't sound too glamorous, right? But that, that, it does the job. I, I wasn't sure what you can say there. Like I've gone to the other end of the spectrum. I bought like a fucking red light therapy unit that I put next to you in the morning, like <laughs> small things that I can do that like, I'm going to sit and fuck, like, I sit there and work in my fucking pants with a red light therapy light on, but like, it doesn't affect have, my day, so I just turn it on and it's easy, right? I actually have one of them as well. There you go. So it's like, yeah. I'm not the only fucking I, weirdo, right? And I've actually um, got a sad lamp. But sad the lamp thing you said there, I have a huge amount of respect for, like, blocking in when you do certain stuff, because most people don't understand as well. They're like organized chaos and obviously why you've been very successful, like, with multiple facets of life because they're like a fucking headless chicken trying to do a million different things at the same time and then wonder why they can't get anything done yeah. um which, which is a huge problem i see uh i actually had uh the author of the book um indestructible i think is um aya Niao on the podcast and he talks a lot about how people just can't focus now because of social media is just wrecking their brain they one of the things you think... mentioned earlier on was that um what's well, your it, it it almost creates a uh adult ADHD, in my opinion, where people can't literally focus on one thing, that they have to do like three things at once. And it's, uh, I mean, we shouldn't laugh. It's funny, right? But we shouldn't laugh because I do think it's quite serious at this point now. The, the reality is that people don't understand it's actually scientifically impossible to multitask because you can't think about more than one thing at a time. It's, it's actually impossible. So like, when you think about that, your brain's skipping from multiple things at the same time. No wonder people are all over the place. If anything, you, you're just creating a further distraction for yourself rather than focusing on something. 100%. Um, one of the things you mentioned earlier was you made a lot of mistakes doing stupid things with PEDs when you were younger. What were those and what are the lessons you maybe learned from that that you'd share with the audience of like what not to do? I think too much too quick for one. Too much too quick is a big one. Um, I, I don't think more does more when it comes to utilising PEDs. Now, secondly, there's a lot of compounds that go around right now. Like, for example, I'll give you one, which is DHB, right? I mean, apparently, because one of the bros said it's it's more powerful than anything else. It's like, I will tell you now, I've used it, and it's, it's dog shit. It doesn't do anything more than other drugs do, right? Apart from give you much worse blood work. So the biggest mistakes I have made is definitely too much too quick, but then also not realizing quick enough that the compounds literally do not matter. What matters most is, right, what can I take that I can tolerate that's going to give me the least side effects and that's going to give me the best blood work. Now, once I've got these three things nailed down, it's extremely simple. All the other fun stuff that will actually allow you to make progress is the nutrition and training because drugs is just one input, right? And I can tell you now, if I had a choice, there's probably three things that I would take and I could I could do everything I need with just three things. And that is it. And I would still make the same progress. Maybe four, if we were supposed to push it, right? So... I think that the sooner I realize that the drugs are not the answer, it's the work around it, and the drugs simply facilitate the quality of your training, the quality of nutrition, this is where I've been able to make more progress. And like I'm I'm you know, I'm running less now than I have done in years past, and I'm making more progress as well. And I think that speaks volumes, right? 
Do you think that's because your body's in less of an inflamed state? Because one of the things I think I see people do is they hammer shitloads of drugs and then they don't actually realize their blood pressure goes through the roof. They're like insulin sensitivity and cortisol is off the charts as well because they're taking so much shit. It actually is causing more problems than if they just took half the dose. You, you've nailed it. You've literally nailed it. Your body's in fight or flight mode, right? When your body's in that state, you're not in an environment to build muscle tissue. I mean, there has never been a time where you've been able to make more progress staying a little bit healthier. And the most progress I've ever made was literally feeling like I'm not on cycle. If you feel like you're on cycle, there is something wrong with your stat design because you shouldn't have the water retention. You shouldn't have the blood pressure. You shouldn't be feeling like shit. And the biggest mistake I see at the moment is people gauge the effectiveness of the cycle by the side effects they're actually getting, which is, which is pretty nuts. Which is pretty crazy, isn't it? Like, but if it's you're the same running, with people like pre-workout, right? Like, yeah, yeah. The, the stronger it is, you know, the, the the worse you feel, the better it is, and it's like that's just not the case. I mean, you can only eat what you can digest, right? If your digestion is completely trashed from all the drugs that you're taking, you can take all the drugs in the world. If you cannot eat, you're not going to grow. Now, secondly, if you're taking certain drugs and you're not sleeping, you're under recovered your constant stress state, you're always going to be under-recovered. So your training isn't going to be as effective. Do you see a pattern now? So when you think about it logically, it makes sense. But nothing that we do, unfortunately, should be as logic, when really it is. But the problem is at the moment as well is you've still got so much bro science and unfortunately drugs work, right? You give someone enough drugs and it will mask poor nutrition and poor, tr- and, 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 and poor training. So I think people are still always swayed towards the drugs when in reality, it's not the answer, right? 100%. What would you say is one of the things you've maybe learned in terms of PD usage with experience of like even supplements you can take alongside it to optimize your health whilst whilst on cycle Uh, that's a good one actually now which supplements would you say yeah to take alongside of it yeah i think a high quality omega is very much undervalued A, a very high quality omega and i'll be honest with you the dosages that i think people are using are far too low when it comes to omegas as well um, I'm a fan of using a, a higher dose of Omega always year round. Uh, yes, it does have a fat intake, but when you've got that variable constant, it doesn't matter because you don't include that in your diet because that's a constant variable year round. So I, I'm definitely a massive fan of that. Now, you've got a lot of supplements like, you know, I'm going to push it now, but Train by JP does Love Heart, right? And Heart Care. Uh, one of them's got Ubiquinol and a few other ingredients, which in past, when I had to buy them separately, it would cost me like 90 quid, which is pretty, pretty crazy, right? Now, if you have the cash to fork out on your growth hormone and your cycle, you should have the cash for, to have the basic supplementation in place. So at least one product that's going to help you with your lipids, like the Love Heart, and at least one a good quality Omega as well. Um, that should be the basics for everyone. Now, As far as stack design, I think any drugs that have actually been used in clinical research are definitely good to go. There's evidence and there's there's data on Primo used in females at something like 1,400 milligrams per week. Now, there's actual evidence of that with no real adverse side effects. Now, 1,400 milligrams is obviously a large dose, but if there's evidence of that and people running that compound at that dose with no real adverse side effects, I think that gives you some clue that potentially it might be a a drug to use. Now, one thing I've noticed with Primo, personally, it actually smashes my HDL much more than Mastron does. But that's me personally, right? So generally with stat design, pick drugs 
that have been approved for human use first and foremost. I think we all know that with some of the greatest guys in the industry pushing that, right? We're not going to name no names, but we know that. And that's common trend, right? You've got your testosterone, you've got your DHTs, maybe some nandrolones. But ultimately for me, it's all about selecting a stack design that's not only going to make you feel good, but one that's going to give you the least side effects. And then it comes to experience taking these compounds, seeing which compound does what, and potentially seeing which compound you can tolerate most and which compound will do the least damage for you when it comes to your lipids as well. Personally for me, um, Mastron actually is, is the most, the most uh, mild, as I would like to say, on my lipids. And that's not the um, same for everyone. That's not the same for everyone. For some people, it's actually all the way around. Primo and Mastron, I'm, I'm, it's funny, I'm exactly the same. I'm yeah. exactly the same. Um I can't take testosterone up very high because I aromatize like crazy. Like I go over 200 milligrams, my estrogen is through the fucking roof. But I can take Mastron as high as I want and my blood work's still like perfect. Yep, which is, and again, this gives you a bit of a clue, doesn't it? Why would you take different compounds when you know these work? And arguably, anything above a thousand milligram, it doesn't matter what compound it is. It all does the same thing. What the difference really is, is... Some of the other compounds will just make you feel worse. And some of the other compounds will give you far more water retention as well. Now, another big one of testosterone is, right, I think we've got a a shift again of people using high amounts of test again, which is okay, completely fine if you can tolerate it. But as long as you don't need to be using an II on top. Now, logic again, right? If you're taking a drug and then you need to take another drug on top of that drug, to control that drug, would it not make more sense to take less of that drug? Because fact of the matter is, most of these guys are taking a DHT compound alongside of that anyway. So would it not make more sense to take less testosterone, take more premormast, and don't take an additional drug to control the side effects from that drug? I think most people lack the ability to think critically like that until it's laid at laid like laid in front of you on a piece of paper. They're like, shit, this is really obvious in hindsight. But um, I think most people also don't understand how different drugs interact. Even like say maybe something like Mastron can actually be used to pull your estrogen levels back down as well. Absolutely. I think you can tolerate more testosterone using a, a DHT at higher dose anyway. Uh, now, one thing I've noticed as well is personally for me is it can be used to, to allow to estrogen to come down. But to be honest, if your estrogen is already high, then you need to bring that testosterone down. No matter how much DHT you'll take, I don't see such a, a huge decrease in estrogen um, where, where it's substantial, to be honest. And I've seen that with myself, to be honest, many, many times. Um, the second I take my testosterone dose past a certain point, no matter how much primo or master take, it's... Uh, it's going to give me sides and then it's time to bring it down or even have to control it then with II situationally um, just to get things under control pretty quick. One last question on that subject. What's your um, use processes like maybe like something like growth hormone, for example, like a lot of people like to take that pre-bed. Suddenly people take it first thing in the morning, like pre-bed, obviously you spoke about the importance of sleep and how it can potentially help with that. Do you take it towards the end of the day or split the dose? Or what do you do in that respect? It depends on the dosage, right? If I'm just working with two IUs, I would always take it pre-bed if I'm not in a fat loss phase. And the reason for that is um, it's the most bioavailable pre-bed because it somewhat mimics your natural production when you take it pre-bed. So this is where your body is used to growth hormone the most. So pre-bed would be my go-to if the dosage was quite low. And then anything after that, it doesn't really matter uh, up to a point because if you are looking for fat loss, there is some there is some benefits using it fasted, but only if you are fasting for like three hours, then it will have some benefits. Other than that, I really don't think it makes much difference. I think it's just more of a case of being consistent with it. One thing I'll say on growth hormone is smaller doses more frequently for me have always worked better. Uh, that way, I think you get much less water retention. And generally, you don't get the same amount of fatigue that you can get using growth hormone just in one shot. I think sometimes it can make you feel quite lethargic. 
Interesting. So if you were taking a higher dose, how would you split that like, across three three sittings in a day? Depends how high it was. If it was a higher higher dose, uh, between three to four sittings. Okay. Okay, that's very, very interesting. And in terms of from your own experience with, if we look at the fat burner perspective, what's your advice to people when they start looking at things even like thyroid medication and things like clenbuterol, for example, where would people start on that aspect? Or like, what have you learned in terms of maybe what not to do and what, what to do? It's quite an interesting one because I've just did a, a lecture for some of my guys on thyroid this morning. So one thing to understand with thyroid use, right? We are using thyroid to keep your metabolism in a good, healthy spot. When you are in a diet phase, naturally your thyroid function will slow down as you lose body weight and as you drop body fat and as your calories start to come down. The whole point and purpose of using any thyroid medication is to simply keep your thyroid in a good spot. So you want to keep it mid-range or even top of the range. You don't want to put yourself in a place where you are then becoming hypothyroid or hyperthyroid, where your thyroid is then skyrocketing and it's going well above and beyond of what your body actually needs. So the biggest thing for me is actually using thyroid initially for any client the same way as it would be deployed clinically. So first port of call would be T4, right? Because generally that is what's always prescribed. Uh, obviously there's conversion, right? Your T4 converts into T3, so on. So for me, it would always start with first and foremost T4. And then you may need to add T3 based off the blood work. Now, Every single person has slightly different absorption rates when it comes to thyroid medication. So it's not such a clear picture that this person needs this. I mean, a replacement dose for most would be around 100 milligrams of T4 and 25 milligrams of T3. Now, this is where you would run blood work with someone and then you'd actually see what the actual markers come back at. If it's too high, you then reduce the medication. If it's too low, you may then need to look at increasing medication. Now, there is a reference point of like 1.5 MCG per kilogram of body weight when it comes to the deployment of T4. So for example, if you've got a 120 kilo male, you may potentially be looking at 150 micrograms of T4 when it comes to utilizing it as a replacement dose, right? But again, even with that, you would always, always get some blood work done and then base it off that. Uh, now, any questions on thyroid? No, Any that more makes sense. Yeah. So I'm trying to make it like super simple so people understand yeah, yeah. like what the point in actual thyroid use is. What you don't want to do is utilize thyroid as a fat loss drug because it is not a fat loss drug. Right? I just want to make that's, that super that's, clear. That's when people lose muscle tissue like crazy, right? When they start trying to crank that up. This is where you become hyperthyroid, which you don't want to be hyperthyroid at any point because this is where your body, your body's metabolism is so high, it will literally break down muscle tissue. So, clenbuterol use. Super simple. Start as low as possible. If your clenbuterol is real, you probably want to start 20 micrograms and then you work up as of when you need it. Now, less is better, always. Um, I don't ever see the need of going above and beyond 80, potentially 120 maximum when it comes to dosing clenbuterol. And to be honest, I think 80 for vast majority of people is the sweet spot. Um, I, I don't think more does more with that. I think if anything, more will probably cause more of a recovery demand, which most people can't actually meet. And then it's going to have a bit I, of a I also think you just well. feel so shitty at that point as well, right? I remember... I tried 120 once when uh, prepping for a show for like three days. I couldn't hold a fucking pen. Like my hand was like fucking like crackhead. It was, it was terrible. I felt awful. I'll never do that again. Yeah. Don't smoke crackheads. Just take Clem. <laughs> eat Clem and trend hard. That's the secret. That's it. That's it. That's it. hundred percent. But with Clem, honestly, use it as of when you need it. Um, I, I think, it, again, it's another drug that's probably overused a little bit and overdosed with most people. I mean, I've heard of some extremely popular coaches that are world-renowned with guys competing at Olympia prescribing something like 200 micrograms and stuff like that, which is, I think, completely, completely um, retarded. But look, it, it's the world we're living right now, isn't it? 
100%. I couldn't agree more. Um, that was an absolute blast, Cuba. Thank you so much for that. Where can people find out more about you, what you do? You've got, you got a lot of content you put on YouTube as well because I see some of your videos pop up sometimes. Uh, where's yes, sir. So, actually? yeah, YouTube, Instagram, type in Cuba, uh, K-U-B-A. You, you will find me. There's not many people with the same name. So that's, uh, that's a lucky one. I think it's... Uh, a lot of bit of unusual name. Obviously, I'm Polish, so YouTube and Instagram is is the main places to be honest, guys. So um, just put my name in, and then you'll see. But uh, yeah, Ultraflex Rotherham. If you are ever in UK and you want to visit a great gym, it's I've just sick. had a bit of an extension. It's actually upgraded since you've been, mate. We've got probably an extra thirty machines since you've been, really, and we've added another floor as well now. Uh, so it's uh, it's expanded, so to speak. We've got um, the cardio area above where, where there was like a, a seating area before upstairs. Yeah, yeah. So we've expanded that and that, that's now a cardio area. And now on the other side, we've fully extended that as well. So we've got shoulders, arms and abs all upstairs. And then obviously the gym, the gym floors now packed out as well with some extra yeah. kit. Um, there is another gym on the cards as well, which we'll all be able to speak about very, very soon. Uh, not quite yet though. And is it ultra flex Dubai? No, not, not yet, not yet. Uh, and then Nitro Gym Equipment as well. I have bought into Nitro last year, and we are working on some amazing projects, so I can't wait to show you guys. 100%. I, and I can say that Ultra Flex Rotherham is the best gym in the UK I've been to. It's In terms of equipment and stuff like that, it's a fucking playground. It's uh, it's sick. So if you're in the UK, it's, it's worth the trip wherever you are. Um Big thank you to you, Cuba. Make sure everyone goes check out and follow that. If you guys enjoyed the podcast, make sure you share it stories. I'll retag and sh- share you guys as well. And if you can leave us five stars, review, subscribe, and we'll see you next episode very soon. So big thank you, dude.